Sober Powered is sponsored by BetterHelp. I was a stress drinker, and I thought, if only I didn't have so much stress, I wouldn't have to drink this much. But do you know why I had all this stress? Because I didn't have the skills to take stressors off my plate, so they built up and wore me down. Some stressors are big and others are small, but carrying around 25 minor annoyances is going to have an impact on you. Plus, did you know that alcohol messes with our stress response system and decreases our ability to handle stress? It makes small things seem like a much bigger deal. Learning how to manage stress and take things off my plate has changed my life. I'm calm, I'm less reactive, and I believe that I can handle whatever comes my way. I feel proud of the way that I handle things now. You can get there too. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com sober to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash sober. Tossing and turning all night like a salad. It's time to put those sleepless nights to bed for good. Enter Tanasi, my sleep saviors, and they have science to back up their sleep, anxiety, and pain-relieving powers. Back in 2016, they invested a $2.5 million grant to Middle Tennessee State University to study the hemp plant. Turns out their special patent-pending CBD-CBDA formula is twice as effective as CBD alone and can be more effective than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. So if you're tired of tossing and turning like a rotisserie chicken, then Tanasi's got your back with their range of great products from tinctures to gummies to lotions. Tanasi is my go-to when I can't sleep or I have way too much anxiety. I'm so glad that I discovered them. So go to Tanasi.com and use the code POWER to get 25% off your order. That's Tanasi.com, T-A-N-A-S-I, to get 25% off your first order with the promo code POWER. Are you tired of your digestive system feeling like a circus act gone wrong? Introducing Ritual's 3-in-1 Gut Superhero Symbiotic Plus, a probiotic, prebiotic, and postbiotic all rolled into one. And with 25% off with the code POWER, there's no better time to check out Ritual. Let's break it down. Probiotics are like the cool kids at the gut party, keeping everything in check and making sure the good vibes are flowing. Prebiotics are their wingmen, fueling the party with all the right snacks to keep the good bacteria thriving. And postbiotics, well, they're like the cleanup crew, sweeping away the mess and leaving your gut feeling fresh and fabulous. So say goodbye to the gut drama and remember, there's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com power. Welcome back to the Sober Powered Podcast. So today I have a really cool interview for you with Amanda White. She's a licensed therapist and she's the author of the new book, Not Drinking Tonight, A Guide to Creating a Sober Life You Love. So the reason that I wanted to have Amanda on the podcast is because her book, is filled with so much information and I know that you will benefit from it. So I wanted to tell you about it first of all, but we're specifically talking about part two of her book in this episode. So not drinking is just the beginning. After that, we unlock the ability to finally improve our lives, become happy, work through any traumas that we have, work on our mental health, 
So in this episode, we're going to talk about the tools that you need to do this work. So that includes how to deal with emotions, how to recognize what your feelings are, how to set boundaries with people, especially if you're a people pleaser or you've never set boundaries before in your life. Amanda talks us through how to have these difficult conversations and what to do if having your boundaries violated is a huge trigger for you, which I think it is for many of us. And we also talk about self-care, what self-care actually is and why alcohol is not self-care. And then at the end of the episode, Amanda is going to tell us how to start therapy and find a therapist that you connect with. And I highly recommend, I tell you this all the time, I highly recommend starting therapy if you are not working with a therapist right now. So Amanda is amazing. She owns her own practice called Therapy for Women Center. She's based in Philadelphia, but she serves clients all across the country, and she specializes in working with people that have substance use disorders and eating disorders. All the links to get her book, to check out her practice, and to follow her on Instagram will be in the show notes. So let's get to this conversation. I'm excited to talk to you about your new book, Not Drinking Tonight. And there are so many, like, really, really great pieces of wisdom in your book. Yeah, I'm just excited to dig into it. So you had three parts, why you drink, the tools that you need to heal your relationship with alcohol, and then how to make it stick. And I think for me, the middle of your book, part two, the tools, like the whole time I'm reading, I'm just like, oh my God, this is so good. Then I get to the next section. I'm like, oh my God, this is so good. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're welcome. So I wanted to dig in on part two, if that is okay with you. Yeah. Before we talk about your book, I've been dying to ask you, like, what got you interested in becoming a therapist in the first place? Yeah. So uh, for those of you that might not know me, I am I'm sober. I've been sober for about seven and a half years now. And essentially, I saw a lot of therapists growing up who I didn't connect with. Um, A lot of them, you know, I was in high school when I kind of started therapy. So a lot of them were older than me. And were kind of like blank slates is what the term is in therapy where you don't share about yourself and your client doesn't know anything about you. And I just like didn't connect with them. I lied. I cared way more about them thinking I was making progress than actually what it took to make progress. The end of college, I was very much into, you know, my I had an eating disorder as well as uh, an addiction to alcohol. And essentially, I didn't know what else to do. I was terrified of getting a job. So I was like, I'll just take psychology classes (laughs) after I graduate. And I was lucky to find a therapist at that time who was amazing. And she was in recovery um, herself. And she was open about that. And I just fell in love with therapy. I loved being in therapy and I kind of promised myself. It was so exciting to me that if I could get into recovery myself, I would love to be able to be that person for other people. And, uh, you know, it kind of went from there. I, I did, you know, I was an addiction therapist and worked at an addiction rehab for a long time. And then I started my own private practice. Well, seven and a half years, first of all, is amazing. Thank you. And so addiction, why did you decide 
to do addiction instead of, you know, eating disorders or, or something else that you're passionate in? Um, for me, essentially, the real reason was I didn't think that I had an addiction at first. I knew I had an eating disorder. I knew I was struggling to get into recovery from it. So when I was first looking for an internship, I was like, it's too close. I can't work at an eating disorder facility. But addiction is kind of similar. I've struggled in the past with it, quote unquote, while I was actively drinking a ton, mind you. Um, So that was why I went into it. And I actually... I mean, I share about this a bit in my book, but I actually was in so much denial that I was like going to work at my internship, um, hungover sometimes after drinking. And I thought I was totally different than them. So it was a bit of a wake up call for me when I realized that I was doing the same thing, just in a different way. And when you started to get into recovery and embrace sobriety, did you struggle at all with imposter syndrome or something like that? Because you're trying to help people, but you're also like trying to help yourself. Oh my gosh, so much. And I had so much shame. Um, And I didn't know what to do because I already had started that path. I was already at my internship and it's like intense in grad school where you can't like switch or quit because you would have to start over essentially. So I just kept showing up and doing things and I was terrified of feeling found out. I had a lot of shame just about that part of my story in general. I used to swear I would never tell anyone. I used to be really insecure about how much time I had, but with time, obviously I, you know, it's a lot easier now to have some perspective on it. Yeah, definitely. And one of, I think my favorite parts of your book is when you talked about emotional maturity. And I think Mm -hmm. that's something that I'm focusing on a lot in my life right now. Because when we stop drinking, we're like little babies. That's how I feel. (laughs) Like a tiny, tiny little baby who doesn't know how to like do anything. And I started drinking late. I think that's really important to say. I didn't start drinking till I was 22. Mm. So if I feel like a little baby, I can't imagine how other people must feel. Um, So what are your thoughts on like how emotional maturity gets stunted when we're drinking? Yeah, I think of it kind of like a metaphor of it's kind of like, I mean, I think a lot of us don't learn how to socialize, how to deal with stress, how to be an adult, quote unquote, without relying on alcohol. Obviously, the younger you are, I think when you start drinking and start really relying on it, um, the more stunted your maturity is. I saw it a lot when I worked um, at an addiction rehab and I worked with women who they were in like a long-term program. So they were there for 90 days and we had to teach a lot of basic life skills. A lot of them didn't know how to process an emotion, how to communicate. And I didn't know that either. Like I really had to learn that. Um, I was in group therapy. I was in individual therapy So I kind of think of the metaphor of it's kind of like we use crutches to cope with something. And if you use crutches, even if you can walk, eventually those muscles will erode and you need to learn how to walk again without, you know, being reliant on that substance to kind of blunt the edges of life to make life easier. Yeah. And even just like not even recognizing how we're feeling at all. Like I never thought I was drinking to cope, but I 
I just was because I was drinking all the time. And then I got sober and I'm like, I don't even know what emotions are. Like, I don't know what this feeling is. And that might sound weird to people who are listening, but I just ha- I had no idea what anything was. I had no idea what anything felt like. Everything was so big and overwhelming. Did you experience that yourself? Like while you were doing this internship? I did. I did. I was lucky enough. The internship is only like, it was only like one day a week. So I Mm -hmm. had like breaks to be able to process it. It would have been really overwhelming if it was a full-time gig. Um, But yeah, it was really overwhelming. And I think sometimes what's really hard about, you know, sobriety is sometimes it does get harder before it gets easier. And I definitely... I mean, I wasn't even an everyday drinker. Um, I was more of a binge drinker. I would black out a lot. And I was shocked at how hard life felt when I put it down because it felt like I don't even drink that much or that often in terms of days. But sometimes it can feel harder before it gets easier because it felt like kind of all my emotions just came up. Yeah, and you talk about an emotional vocabulary in your book. And that was that was one of my favorite parts because this is a huge passion of mine. It's like learning about feelings and how yes. to deal with stuff. And how do we even know like where to start? Like if you have no emotional vocabulary, you might not even know that about yourself until you're faced with something. You can only recognize the feeling as like bad or overwhelming yeah. or like I feel crazy. And where can we even start to like learn this vocabulary and apply it to actual things that we're feeling? Yeah, it's a really great thing because even if you don't have an addiction, sometimes people don't ever learn how to identify their emotions. I mean, unless your parents knew how to do it or you went to therapy, I mean, we don't teach this in schools. So a good place to start, I mean, I'm Maybe people have seen there's something called like a feelings wheel, but that can be kind of overwhelming if you look at it because there's so many different emotions. So essentially, the other thing about emotions is they're not just um, they're not just in us for us to discover. They're also created within the context that we live in. So what I mean by that is I like something can happen and depending on what's going on in my life, I might interpret that feeling, which a lot of emotions start as physiological body sensations. So if my heart rate is beating really fast, depending on the situation I'm in, that might shape how I interpret my heart rate being high, right? If I am on a stage, right? Like my heart rate being high could be nervousness. If I um, can't sleep at night, I might interpret my heart rate as being anxious. But essentially there are four main things that are hardwired into us that every animal and human can feel. And essentially the way to break it down is you can identify always, you might not know the word, but you can identify essentially if you're feeling good or bad, or we can call it high pleasantness or low pleasantness. And then you can feel if you have high or low energy. And that would be where I would start is trying to think to yourself, am I like in a good or a not good mood? And am I energetic or not energetic? And from those four quadrants, essentially, you can start to then get more specific and notice, right, if you're high energy and low mood, that would be like angry. Versus if you're high energy and high mood, it would be like joyful. 
if you're low energy and low mood, it's like depressed. Anyway, so that would be this, I feel like was complicated, but <laughs> that's where I would start is trying to start with those kind of four quadrants. Mark Brackett is um, a psychologist out of Yale, and he has actually an app that's called the Mood Meter, which I highly recommend um, that it's like an app that helps you do this. Because essentially what we know based on research is the better you're able to identify how you feel, the better you're able to regulate your emotions and take care of yourself. And that's, we call that emotional granularity. Yeah. And that is so important. And I think it can feel really scary. Like when you don't even know what's going on, how do you know where to start? But I like that just starting with paying attention, like how's your energy and how's your mood? Are you good and bad? Are you excitable? Are you low energy? Like just start there. And then like the specificity can come from that. I like that a lot. And I think that's really, really helpful. Um, what was your journey though, when you started figuring out emotions and did you like, did you start with what I'm describing? Like, I don't even know what these feelings are. <laughs> I did. I mean, I didn't have any of the tools that I just described because no one really taught me how to do that. Um, yeah, I, I was really overwhelmed because I've always been someone who had a lot of emotions or a lot of strong feelings about things. Even as a kid, my parents used to say that I was like dramatic or I was like intense. So it was really difficult for me because I think one of the biggest things for me is I grew up kind of feeling like you should be happy all the time. That should be your baseline. If I would come to my parents and say, I'm upset or angry or whatever, it would always be like, but look at all you have. Why? Why? Why would you feel that way? So I used to always think that there was something wrong with me for how I felt. Yeah, I I get that. And to be grateful that you don't have it worse and think mm -hmm. about all these other kids that are struggling with, yes. you know, I, I'm not going to list them out, but all these right. horrible things that kids could struggle with. Yeah, I, I've never thought of it that way. But that that is something that I believe, too, like. I should have gratitude for all yeah. that I have. And then that just makes you feel more ashamed. Exactly. Like you're even more bad than you thought you were before. Exactly. And I used to get really, really stuck in my thoughts of thinking I was a bad person, of thinking I was my thoughts. I was responsible for not creating like uh, a feeling of gratitude. And when that happens, right, you like you said, you have your initial feeling and then you have shame on top of your initial feeling. And a lot of us, I think, judge our emotions and that actually prevents us from effectively working through them. So how do we stop judging them and just allow them to be? I think that's that's probably where you start is you stop trying to make it go away. Stop trying to think it's too much or not enough or it's the wrong feeling and just let it be whatever it is. Yeah. And I think that is where mindfulness does come in. Um, it Mindfulness doesn't need to be meditation. It doesn't need to look like sitting down or anything like that. Mindfulness is simply noticing what your thoughts are or what um, is happening in your body. I think that's one thing to start learning. And I think the other is to really think about and remember that happiness isn't your baseline. Like your brain doesn't care whether you're happy. 
in evolutionary terms, your brain cares about keeping you alive. And your brain would rather have you be anxious and stay alive because you're anxious about something happening than be complacent and not worrying and potentially put yourself in harm's way. So I think we also have to shift out of this idea of happiness is an emotion, just like sadness, anger, frustration, anything else. It's going to come and it's going to go. But if you don't feel happy all the time, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. Yeah, that's a really important point. Um, Because I I struggle with depression. So that's like my thing. Like, I'm either happy or like, there must be something wrong. Like I'm depressed today, or, you know, something happened. and, And I always expect the baseline to be this level of happiness. But that's not like people don't just walk around you know, like happy and love and life all the time. Like a lot of us are just kind of chill and we go in and out of different feelings. Exactly. And I think a lot of us were raised, I mean, I think like millennials, especially if you think about when counseling started, it started as a profession in the 1950s, which is not very long ago. A lot of our parents, right? Like their parents grew up in the Great Depression, potentially. So they were taught like, you should be so happy because you didn't struggle the way that we did. And then they passed that down to us. Um, And I think we just need an overhaul kind of of what the expectation is for our mood, because Mm -hmm. happiness and joy are emotions just like, you know, other emotions. Yeah, it is all okay. Yes. Yes. And we all have different baselines, you know, and if you do struggle with depression and anxiety, I also do. Your baseline might be a little different, like your brain might be wired a little bit different. And that also doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And you just have to learn to work with what you have and learn to help it. Like when I get really depressed, I'm exhausted. That's my biggest symptom. And I have to learn to work with that. And like, how can I increase my energy? And, you know, how can I find ways to still be productive, even if I am low energy? So you just got to work with what you have, not like guilt and shame yourself for not having this like perfect mood. Exactly. And so often, I think when we don't practice that level of acceptance or understanding, we spend so much time beating ourselves up, being upset about it, bargaining with it, being in denial about it, rather than being like, hey, today I'm anxious today. Today I'm depressed today. What can I do to support myself? It all comes back to acceptance. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> you said that word and I was like, yes. Yeah. Acceptance. Then, my favorite word. And people, I think, really get confused by the word acceptance whenever I talk about it on social media, especially too. I love to just remind people like acceptance doesn't mean you like it. Like it doesn't mean approval. It just means you stop fighting with reality. Yes. Yeah. You don't have to like it. Like I don't like that I have depression since we're running with this example, but it is what it is. Like I have it and, you know, I have it. Yeah. Right. And like fighting it doesn't help. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't change it into something else. So yeah, it is what it is. And let's find a way to deal with what we have. Yeah. So something else that you talk about in part two of your book is boundaries. Yeah. And that's another huge struggle. And I see on social media a lot that people don't even understand fully like what boundaries are are. And 
and not even like how to enforce a boundary, which is something I want to talk to you about because that was your advice is great. But like we don't even fully get what a boundary is because we've never had them. Maybe they've never been modeled. Um, so what is like a healthy boundary? So a boundary in general is just it is what you ex- like allow and accept in your life. It's what you tolerate and what you don't tolerate. It teaches people what's okay and what's not okay. But a healthy boundary is also able to be flexible in some capacity. Obviously, if the person is not a safe person or doesn't treat you well, I wouldn't recommend a flexible boundary with them. But I think in general, one thing I see a lot is people can get very obsessed with having like perfect boundaries or having boundaries that never move and never change. And boundaries are meant to be able to serve you and serve your life and your life and you will change over time and people in your life will change. So I really think it's important, especially with close people in your life, like a significant other or close friends, family, depending on what's going on in their life and your life, it might need to be molded or shaped And there might need to be some negotiation in order to make it work for both people. Yeah, you gave an example of um, all the different types of boundaries, but one of them was sexual boundaries. And I think that's a good way to understand it. If someone has a history um, of sexual trauma, they might have very rigid boundaries around sex. But other areas of your life, you may not have to be that rigid or like if something's a trigger for you sexually, that's going to be a rigid boundary that you don't really adjust. Yes. Yeah. And you also said something about like other people. I think we expect a boundary is like, okay, I set this boundary. Now everyone is going to behave (laughs) perfectly. They're going to follow my rules. They're going to do what I want. And that has nothing to do (laughs) with what a boundary is at all. Yes. Yes. A boundary really is something that you do for yourself, but you don't set boundaries to change people. People may change as a result of your boundaries, but the goal of the boundary is not to change people. In the same way, sometimes I'll give like a metaphor of a fence around a house is meant to prevent people from walking on your lawn, but it's not going to change that person from not walking on your lawn if the bound if like the door is open or walking on other people's lawns or really anything about them. It's just like a guide rail for them. I like that a lot. They might be the neighborhood, you know, lawn stomper (laughs) (laughs) and your fence isn't going to make them stop doing that. It's just going to make them stop doing it on your lawn. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, And enforcing a boundary. I think a lot of people pleasers like me, for example, uh, we set a boundary And we name a consequence that we're not comfortable enforcing. And then we don't enforce it. And then we wonder why people don't respect our boundaries. Um, And that might cause people to become like passive aggressive or like really angry or something. But how do you recommend enforcing a boundary for like a newbie boundary setter? Yeah, I don't recommend necessarily if someone's setting a boundary with someone for the first time, immediately stating a consequence because of what you just said. A lot of people will give examples of like, let's give an example of, um, please don't ask me about that topic anymore. If you keep asking me, I won't spend time with you. 
anymore. And I think it's important to really think about, is that realistic for you? Because like you said, sometimes we can overshoot and then it actually doesn't, people lose like listening for us because they don't believe that we're going to uphold it. So my recommendation is just start with a conversation. Um, Especially, I really believe in starting with compassion can be helpful if that person is someone, obviously this doesn't apply to every situation, but if you believe that person isn't um, being malicious by asking you, I don't know, you know, when are you going to get married? Let's use that example, right? You could say something like, because essentially people become really defensive sometimes too, when you just say like, please don't ask me about that. If you keep asking me, I can't talk to you anymore. So that can be like abrupt for that person who's like, where's this coming from? So my two recommendations, one, I would recommend saying it to them, like not when they're directly saying that, Because they're going to be more receptive if you say like, hey, I know that you really are interested in my life. At this time, I'm just not comfortable talking about my relationship status. So saying it before or after the conversation, they're a little more calm, less defensive. And also like recognizing that maybe they have good intentions, like saying, I know that you're probably trying to be close to me or you're curious about me or you care about me that can diffuse the situation. And then the other tip that I really have is do not use the word but when setting boundaries. (laughs) Because when you use the word but, people forget the first thing that you say and they're left with the second thing you say. So it's much more effective if you say, hey, I know that you didn't mean any harm and say something like at the same time instead of saying, but don't do this. Yeah, then they're alarmed, like, but right, but I did harm you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They, yeah, and they forget what you, all of your compassion towards them initially. <laughs> yeah, I like that, and not to just like drop the boundary bomb right on someone because when you've had no boundaries, and then all of a sudden you're trying to set them, it's going to feel alarming and weird for the people receiving the boundary. So I like that. Have a conversation some other time. Yeah. And then, you know, set the boundary or whatever. Yeah. And boundaries are also like the first time you set the boundary, it might not be effective. And that doesn't mean that that is a wrong boundary or that you shouldn't try again. I would say most of the work of boundaries is actually like reinforcing them rather than actually the initial time you set them. What do you think are some of the most common like boundaries that you see people struggle with or not have? It's a good question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it does have to do a lot of times with conversations with people asking them things that they don't want to answer. And people kind of say to themselves, well, I'll just answer this question to kind of shut that person up. And they don't realize they're leaving the door open for that conversation to happen again. I think another one is just like the emotional boundary of feeling responsible for someone, feeling like not taking care of themselves and removing themselves for a situation when they realize that um, they're becoming, you know, they feel maybe they leave a situation with a friend and they feel guilty or bad that they're not doing enough. I think those are two pretty common ones. People are see, people often are better at like physical type boundaries, like 
sexual boundaries or material boundaries um, where it's a little more concrete? Violating boundaries can be a huge trigger. I think that is one of my big triggers. One of my, um, I guess one of my biggest triggers is like feeling that people don't respect my time Mm. and time is a boundary too. Yes. That is a very good one. And when your boundaries are violated, um, people may feel really angry, um, like very quickly. So Mm -hmm. what can we do if um, boundary violations are just like a huge trigger to drink at people or numb out in some other way or binge eat or, you know, do something else self-destructive? I think if it's someone that is like a person in your life that you see often or have contact with, I think one thing to do is to let them know that this is something that impacts you and try to kind of advocate for, again, saying something like, look, I know you don't mean harm by showing up late or something like that. I think that's a really common way time boundaries are violated. And then saying like, at the same time, this is something that just like really impacts me. Um, So it would really help me if you made more of an effort to be on time or even kind of like brainstorming strategies with them too. Like that's also, especially if it's your significant other or someone that you spend a lot of time with, that's where that boundary negotiation can come in of saying like, you know, to your significant other, maybe like, hey, I'm going to tell you we have to leave like 10 minutes earlier than we do so that we're not, you know, we're not late. And that doesn't impact me as much, for example. Yeah, I like that strategizing. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a really good idea. You might not remember this, but and I can cut it out if you don't. But I'm curious, what was your first boundary that you set in sobriety? And how did that go for you? I had a lot of big boundaries, but one huge boundary that I had to set early on was I told when I told my parents that I was going to stop drinking and I told them I was an alcoholic, they didn't believe me. They thought I was being dramatic. And my mom especially used to um, say like, oh, you'll drink eventually. It's not a big deal. Like you'll eventually, you know, she used to make just little comments all the time, sometimes not even directly to me, just about how this was a phase and I didn't really have a problem. And I had to have a very stern because I had had the boundary, like I talked to her a couple times. I tried to have a conversation. I tried to, you know, be understanding about it. And it got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. And I had to set a really rigid boundary with her and say, you cannot talk to me about whether I should drink or not. It really negatively impacts me. It makes me want to drink. Please don't do this or I'm going to have to like limit time with you. And she respected it. I mean, it took us, I think, I think it's a good example of if I would have just come out out of the blue with that, I don't think she would have been receptive to it, but it was something that I kept coming up and I finally was very clear about like, this didn't work for me. And I like the consequence of, I will have to limit time with you, not I'm never going to speak to you again, or I'm not going to be able to see you you off. (laughs) You're done. Yeah. But that's a good one that you can actually feel comfortable enforcing. I'm going to limit time with you. Not like you're done. I'm never speaking to you again. You're the worst. And how did you respond to that conversation? Because that feels scary. Like confrontation feels Mm -hmm. scary. And, And like this idea of letting people down. 
I mean, I remember crying about it. I remember like calling my sponsor after and being really upset about it. Um, and I felt I one thing that I used to struggle with a lot with boundaries, too, was I didn't want to cut people off. And I think that's an important distinction with boundaries is a lot of times people are setting boundaries because they want to keep you in their life. Like if they didn't care, they wouldn't have the conversation with you. They would just move on and not talk to you anymore. Um, So I think it was really, so it was a little scary for me of what her reaction would be. And I know she was upset when I said it, but I had kind of gotten to the point where I was so frustrated that um, I feel like the people pleaser in me didn't even really show up that much. I think it showed up after and I was scared, but in the moment I was just like, I can't do this anymore. This doesn't work. Like I will drink if you keep doing this. I think that's amazing. And yeah, when we get tired of people doing the same behavior over and over, I've had people that have pushed me like that too. Like, why can't you just have one? Why did you have to, you know, drink so much, whatever. And eventually you just like get sick of it and you have more confidence in saying what you need to say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the other parts in this section was about self-care And that's another struggle that I see a lot is people believe alcohol is self-care. They believe that they have earned a drink and they deserve it and that it's a treat. So I wanted to talk to you about like what's real self-care and why isn't alcohol considered a treat or a reward? I think self-care, the most like the most helpful way to think of self-care is it's taking care of your future self. And sometimes when I share that concept, people say like, well, are you just trying to like push me to go to the gym more, be more disciplined? And a lot of times your future self will actually thank you for sleeping, for right, like taking care of your mental health, for taking a rest day, for saying no. So it's really just about what you need in that moment and what you anticipate your needs will be in the future. And for alcohol, it is the opposite of self-care because yes, in the moment it feels temporarily better, but alcohol creates, I mean, alcohol is an addictive substance. It creates a thirst for itself. So, I mean, even if you're not trying to be sober necessarily, it's not self-care because if you're trading momentary satisfaction for long-term negative consequences or anxiety, that's not that's not really taking care of yourself. It's kind of acting uh, compulsively in the moment. (laughs) So do you think it's safe to say that self-care is taking care of future you? Yes, exactly. And whatever they need. So maybe when we consider self-care in the future, we can think is future Jill, for example, Mm -hmm. going to be happy that I did this thing? Yes, Exactly. And that to me also is why, like, I'm not saying like people can't get manicures or get a massage or something like that. Sometimes that can be a way to take care of yourself. But the context matters, right? If you are trying to stick to a budget and you can't like afford to spend that money, that isn't taking care of your future self. If you're, um, you know, going to be feeling like if you're not meeting your basic needs and you're choosing to do something else instead of meeting your basic needs, 
that's not really taking care of yourself. So I even think sometimes thinking of yourself as like, I know we kind of talked about this, but like as a kid, <laughs> like what does your, what do you need? What would that like loving inner parent say to you? They probably wouldn't say like, yeah, just like go get drunk tonight and, and don't worry. <laughs> just get a manicure tomorrow. It'll be fine. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's different than treat yourself. Self-care is not treating yourself. Yeah, I like that. Um, and that was a big theme of that section, too, which is yeah. why I loved it so much was reparenting yourself and being kind to yourself, because we do feel like little tiny babies in the beginning that just need love and care and we need to learn. And there's nothing wrong with the fact that we didn't know like how to do these basic things and handle our emotions and set boundaries. But now we can learn and be kind to ourselves, you know, along the way. Exactly. Um, so I have to ask what inspired you to write the book? Like where did you have this idea in your head for, I don't know, maybe six years <laughs> and then you decided like, quarantine is the time <laughs> um I did write it all during quarantine but the process had started before quarantine so I did not expect to write the book in a <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> um I think what really inspired me is I love all the quitlet that's out there I think it's amazing and I felt really what was missing was a therapist's perspective on it I think that like really that second section is my favorite section of the book as well, because it's really what I think everyone needs to know. It's based on just not only what I learned, but really what when I was working with people that were, you know, newly sober, kind of like the basic building blocks that we had to teach people how to do. Um, and I felt like that was what was missing just kind of from the quitlet genre and um yeah, that was kind of like the big, I think, inspiration. I also really liked like my platform. Obviously, I speak a lot about sobriety and stuff, but I also I wouldn't say the majority of people that follow me are sober. So I really liked the idea of being able to write a book where people could um, maybe pick it up even and get something even if they're not sober and maybe it could inspire them. What is next for you? Like you have, I feel like you have so much going on. <laughs> um, oh, what is next for me? Um, essentially, what's I mean, my practice is getting really big right now. So I spend a lot of time on my my practice. My goal is right now we're we're in 17 states. We have two locations in Philly and then remote in 17 states. And I would love to be able to have a therapist licensed in every state so that, you know, lots of people reach out to me and are like, do you have this state? Do you have this state? So I would love to be able to expand there. Um, and I have floated the idea of starting a podcast. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> I think you should do it. I'm Thanks. biased. A little bit. <laughs> I'm yearning for a, like conversations. Like I'm yearning for, I love being on Instagram. I'm not going anywhere, but the short content um, can be really limiting sometimes. And I'm, I love like the gray and the nuance. So I think a podcast could be a way for me to, you know, talk a little more in a little more nuanced way. Yeah. I would listen to that. And I think a lot of people would. Thank you. Um, so if anyone listening wants to start therapy because yeah. I, I tell everybody all the time go to therapy like where can we start how can we try to find someone that we click with 
I mean, funny enough, one of the things I do recommend is there are a lot of amazing therapists on Instagram and you can kind of learn about that therapist and their style and see if they jive with you. Um, You can use a, um, you know, there's like therapy directories. I have a bunch at the back of my book. There's like therapy den. There's um, psychology today. There's different, uh, there's like inclusive therapists. There's all different directories. So you could start there. You could Google places that are near you and see what pops up there. My biggest recommendation is just start. You might have to try. It's kind of like dating. You may have to like have a couple calls with a couple different therapists and see. But the most important thing, what we know research says is the most important thing is the relationship you have with your therapist. So if you don't click with them, find a new therapist. Yeah. And don't try to force a connection that isn't there. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming on my show. I'm going to have a link Uh, to not drinking tonight in the show notes. Highly recommend. I think it was an amazing book. I think we really needed it. Um, So besides your book and your Instagram, is there anywhere else that we can follow up with you or learn more about your work? I am on TikTok. (laughs) So if you want to follow me over there, it's also therapy for women. And if you're interested in seeing a therapist at my practice, um, therapy for women center is... um, my practices uh, website. Amazing. And all of these links will be in the show notes for anyone who wants to check them out. Thank you again. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Addiction impacts all of us. Addiction's consequences run through all of us. From ourselves to our loved ones and through our communities, addiction creates so much loss and grief. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm the host of the Addicted Mind podcast, a show featuring personal stories, expert guests, and vital information about addiction and addiction recovery. We'll talk with leading treatment providers to discuss the latest research and treatment options for this devastating disease and advocate for mental health awareness. We discuss topics like the importance of creating a community of support to helping loved ones to some of the latest research on psychedelic medicines. The Addicted Mind podcast has been about creating hope, listening to stories of many amazing people that have overcome addiction and are thriving. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, subscribe to the Addicted Mind podcast wherever you get your podcasts or check out theaddictedmind.com. New episodes every Monday. See you there.